You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. We as a church had the pleasure of preaching through the book of Ruth. For those of you who were with us or those of you familiar with the book of Ruth, it begins with a famine in God's promised land leading a family, mom, dad, their two boys, to leave God's promised land for a foreign country. They're in the foreign country. Family grows up, two sons. They get married. And then tragedy strikes this house. Father dies. The two sons die, leaving Naomi, the only Israelite left in that family with two daughters-in-law in a foreign country trying to figure out what to do. Five verses into chapter one of Ruth and Naomi is facing this incredible, tragic situation and we're wondering, what will Naomi do in the face of fear? Now, the book of Ruth doesn't come right out and say it in chapter 1, but implicit in that story is that leaving the promised land of God in the face of famine was a fearful decision. And so how will Naomi respond with even greater tragedy? Though deep in grief, what we learn from the book of Ruth is that Naomi determines she will return to God's promised land and God's promised people. And understandably, she tells these two daughters-in-law, you should stay here and you ought to find yourselves some other husbands for there's no chance for me to ever have any more kids, no reason for you to return with me. And of course, one of them decides... That's a good idea, and stays. But the other one, Ruth, she goes with Naomi. It turns out, Ruth adopts Naomi's country. Ruth adopts Naomi's family. And Ruth adopts Naomi's God. And in so doing, it's both Naomi and Ruth who show great faith in the face of fear. It is these two ladies in the book of Ruth, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who provide a vivid contrast with the two women in our text today. For while our passage is uncomfortable and frankly gut-wrenching, what we find in Lot's two daughters are the antithesis to Naomi and Ruth. Two sections in the selected text today, so there will be two big ideas in the sermon. Here it is. First, we're all afraid of something. And second, we've all got two responses to fear. If you're taking notes, two ideas, two responses. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, would you open to Genesis 19? 
30 to 38. Let's begin with our first big idea. We're all afraid of something. Let me show you from the scripture. Look with me at verse 30 of chapter 19. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, in case you missed last week or not quite sure what's happening in Genesis 19, you can scan back just a little bit to remember that it was Lot who had been in Sodom and God's angels had come to investigate. And there was this grim reminder of God's judgment as Lot seemed to be asleep at the wheel. And in the face of God's judgment, these two angels pull Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of the city. The son-in-laws didn't make it because, well, they thought Lot was joking about God's judgment. And Lot's wife didn't make it either. And it's as if you can almost smell the smoke on Lot and his two daughters. That's how close they were to judgment. Lot had arrived in Sodom quite rich and wealthy, thank you very much, Genesis 13, 5. But in 19, he has lost everything. He seemed to be asleep at the wheel and even at the end of 19, 1922, if you look there, he's trying to negotiate with the angels who said, go live in the hills. And he says, but I love that city life. Let me go to the city, please. The angels say, okay. So he's in Zoar. But in the first verse of our text, presumably sometime after judgment, look at verse 30. He's left that city. He's back in a cave. And what is the reason that the text gives us for him living like Gollum from Lord of the Rings? Well, look in the book, verse 30. Lot's afraid. The fear of Lot is not explicitly unpacked, but I don't think you've got to be Sigmund Freud to figure out why he's so worried. You know, context shows us, and I'm convinced Lot's worried, God is going to judge Zoar like he just did Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm out the city. I'm going to go live in a cave so I don't get rained on by sulfur and fire. But, but pastor, Genesis 19.21 says from the Lord that he would not do that. And if you look in the scripture, you would see that in Genesis 19 verse 21, these angels speaking on behalf of God do promise Lot. We won't judge Zoar. Well, so why is he so afraid? Well, here's the thing with Lot. All in Genesis 19, he seems to be asleep, and he's not really believing the Lord. So much so that, like we said, the angels had to grab Lot by the hand and get him out the city. And he's lingering, and he's negotiating. And so I'm not surprised at all that Lot's struggling to believe in the promises of God. Instead, he's overwhelmed by his fear. And whereas Lot would have been culturally responsible to find two husbands for his daughters, he is living like a doomsday prepper in his fallout shelter. So Lot's in a cave with his two girls because he's afraid. That's in the text. But he's not the only one afraid in this text. Look at verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old. And there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, 
Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Now, real quick, would you go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19? It's just one page back in my Bible. Genesis 18, 19. In a couple weeks ago, I'd encourage you to circle this verse. Circle the 19. Highlight it if you like. What I want you to see in Genesis 18, 19 that'll help us understand what's going on with these two ladies is a command from the Lord to Abraham. And it's telling Abraham, this is how I want you to raise your kids. If you look at Genesis 18, 19, I'm looking in my Bible. It says, command your children in your household after you to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. To keep the way of the Lord. Would you say way of the Lord? One, two, three. Way of the Lord. Okay, now flip back to 1931. In 1931 that we're looking at, the older daughter says, there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Would you say manner of all the earth? One, two, three. Of all the earth. Way of the Lord and manner of all the earth. I did the homework. They're the same phrase in the original language. And what our author is doing is he's showing us a contrast between the way of the Lord and the way of the world. Lot's daughters are living in the manner of the earth. Abraham's to teach his kids to live in the manner of the Lord. What the original audience would have understand understood is God's people, they live God's way. And they are not to live the way of the world. And here, parents, an implicit application for us. Are we discipling our kids in the way of the world? Or are we discipling them in the way of the Lord? Let there be no doubt. Our kids are being discipled. Our kids are getting discipled, moms and dads. The question is, who's doing it? Are they getting discipled in the way of the Lord or in the way of the world? And look, it's not just our kids. All of us in this room, all of us in this room, we all are being discipled. The question is, who's doing the discipling? Are you being discipled in the way of the world or in the way of the Lord? In our text, Lot's afraid to live in Zoar. His daughters are afraid that they're not going to have any kids. And so these two women devise a wicked plan for self-preservation. And, and we'll get there in a moment. For now, let's stop to consider Lot and his two daughters. They're both struggling with fear, but it wouldn't just be them reading this. It's not just them struggling with fear. It also would have been Moses' original audience, the Israelites in the wilderness, who would have much to be afraid of. And it's not just the Israelites who struggle with fear. Church, it's us too. We all struggle with fear. Every single person in here is afraid of something. The real question is, do you know what it is? You're afraid of something. I'm afraid of something. We might be afraid of a lot of somethings. 
But if we split, spend enough time together, you were honest enough, I was honest enough, we get to some stuff you're afraid of. Often, you can discover what you're afraid of when that thing gets threatened. Because when we feel threatened, we move right into self-preservation mode. Shields up, fences up, block you out. Sometimes it's when our control is threatened. Sometimes it's when our comfort is threatened. Sometimes we feel powerless and we're afraid of that. Sometimes we're afraid of how much we might love somebody. We might be abandoned. Sometimes we're afraid we're not going to get the approval we want. Whatever it is, we all struggle with fear. And when fear is overwhelming, we often resort to self-preservation. This is what's happening in the text. Lots of afraid. I'm afraid God's going to have judgment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go bunker down in my fallout shelter. I'm going to protect myself from God. I'm afraid I'm going to go live like Gollum. Lot's not interested in finding any boys for his daughters. He's too afraid to go outside because he may get pulverized by the Lord. Lot's daughters too. They're so full of fear, they decide to not only disobey God's commands for sex, but to dishonor their father. In both cases, we see self-preservation. Their faith is not in God, but it is in themselves trying to save themselves. So what about you, church? What are you afraid of? I'm arguing that we're all afraid of something. And when the pressure's on, we often flush our faith and we embrace self-preservation. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. Lord, you don't understand. No, no. I get it. I see it in my own life. And far too quickly, we justify our actions. Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? You've got to understand, self-preservation always leads to self-destruction. Self-preservation always leads to self-destruction. Sure, you might live in a fallout shelter and make it a couple more days, but it's going to end in self-destructions. Your sinful plan may seem to resolve a sticky situation, but it's always only temporary when you are living in self-preservation. Living in sinful fear always destroys. And it'll get you in the end. And that's why understanding what you're afraid of is so important. We need to know where are we vulnerable. We need to be honest enough and humble enough to realize none of us has arrived. None of us is bulletproof. We've all got our issues that we're bringing to the table. No need to deny your need to ignore your fear. We're all afraid of something. And if you're that person sitting there going, except for me, I've never been afraid of anybody in my life. You know, the tough guy persona. That guy's the most afraid of anybody here. We're all afraid of something. And when that fear shows up in our life, there's two ways to respond. 
We've got two responses to fear, and that brings us to our second point. If you're taking notes, here's the second big idea. We've all got two responses to fear. I draw this from verses 33 to 38. Here in the face of fear, Lot's firstborn daughter has hatched a horrible plan. A plan, contextually, we conclude, did not come from Uncle Abraham, but a plan that came from sinful Sodom. Undoubtedly, the sin of incest with a dad has nothing to do with how God's people are to live. It has everything to do with the way of the world from the text, verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He didn't know where she lay down or when she arose. They made dad get drunk. I don't know how they did that, but he seems blacked out. Totally unaware of the sexual assault. And notice, church, the daughters knew how wicked their plan was. They knew dad's not going to do this sober. But as awful as verse 33 is, it only gets worse. 34, the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. and He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Mill Creek, are you seeing how when the pressure was on, these two women self-destructed? Not so different than a couple women earlier in Genesis, Genesis chapter 16, where if you remember, Sarah, she takes matters into her own hands, and I can't get you a baby, Abraham, so come into Hagar, and and she'll give you a baby. Sarah self-destructs in Genesis 16, Hagar self-destructs in Genesis 16 by looking contemptuously. Here, Lot's daughters are doing the same play. You need a new offensive coordinator. We need to run something different. No, these, these ladies are taking matters into their own hands. We can't trust God for a husband. We're not going to return to God's chosen family, Uncle Abraham, that God promised to bless. We're not going to return to God's chosen land where Abraham lived. We're not going to wait for God to provide a redeemer for us. Nope, we've got our own plan. Thank you very much. Which reveals one way that we respond to fear. When all of a sudden, these very precious ideas get threatened in our lives. When these very precious desires of approval or control or comfort or power or love begin to feel threatened, we often take matters into our own hands. That's the way we respond. We look around at how the rest of the world responds, and we just follow the world's way. That's what our author is driving at. This is the way of the world, to take matters into our own hands. So that's the first response to fear. But what then is the other response? Well, that's what we saw in Genesis 18, verse 19. 
the way Abraham and the people of God are called to live. And either we're going to take matters into our own hands and try to do it our way, or we're going to open our hand and trust God. Total vulnerability, total surrender. I may not have any control, but I'm going to trust you. And this, friends, is the antidote to sinful fear. You want the antidote to this poison? It's saying, I'll trust you, whatever you have for me. Lot would have trusted in the promises of God. If his daughters would have trusted in the promises of God, how different would this story have been? It might have had a beautiful ending like the book of Ruth. But instead, they chose the path of self-preservation, and self-preservation always leads to self-destruction. And that's this whole sermon in a sentence. And if you wondered what self-preservation is going to produce, self-preservation always leads to self-destruction. Look how Lot self-destructed. Man, he's in a bad spot. I mean, hello, Lot. Wake up. You should have done something for your daughters. You should have provided And I mean, good grief, Lot was willing to take the initiative earlier, and he even offered his two daughters to be gang-raped, but here he can't be leaving his cave. He's in an awful place, getting blackout drunk night after night. He needed to wake up in Genesis 19. He needs to sober up now. But let us be clear. While Lot's responsible for many problems in this text, his poor decisions do not make him responsible for being the victim of rape. Here, though, we arrive at our second question for application. Church, how are you responding to fear? How are you responding to fear? We've got a negative example in the text. And then the Israelites, they would have been faced with this question. How will they respond to fear? Will they go the way of the world, the way of the Canaanites in the promised land? Or will they respond in faith to God? Would the Israelites take matters into their own hands? Or would they find solution by opening their hands to God's will? For us then, if you're here, and as you're Listening to this sermon preached, and as the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit always does, John 16, 8, convicts us of sin, there may be some of you in here who go, all right, pastor, before the Lord, my conscience is clean. I really am. I really am trying to trust the Lord. And I know I've got fear issues, but I'm open-handed. Amen. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep taking those areas that feel so fearful and bringing them to Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In every way, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. But if you're responding to fear by living in the way of the world, if like Lot and his daughters, 
You're guilty of sinful self-preservation. If the Spirit even right now is bringing to mind a way in which you have decided to take control of a sinful situation to try to extort what you want, you need to repent. Look, if we're, if we're talking about what you're afraid of and, and, and the promises of God are, are nowhere on your radar... If you've not connected the dots between, man, I'm really afraid of this thing and, and God, and you repent. The promises of God were, were nowhere on Lot's radar. And, and if the promises of God are nowhere on your radar, you need to repent. But church, we need to sidebar for a minute with the gruesome and horrible sins of sexual assault and incest we see in this text, and we need to just take a moment to acknowledge the painful reality that sins like this have on us today. For as you look in this text, you notice it is two women who are the perpetrators. And that's part of the shock of Genesis 19 because in our culture, in our day, we know men are guilty of such sins, and we will see in Genesis how there are men guilty of such sins. Sins, But seeing the women guilty of it in our text reveals to us that neither men nor women can claim to be immune from sexual immorality. And both men and women, according to Genesis, are guilty and capable of shocking sins. And just as this text reveals sexual seduction, so in our culture today, sexual seduction permeates our communities. It's all over our entertainment. It's all over the news. For so many in here, it's all over your memory banks. And while some may think such topics are off-limits and taboo for a church to talk through, as the people of God, we cannot ignore sexual assault or incest. And church, we must not think that we are somehow immune from some of these situations in our community or in our city or in our church. Maybe you would have thought, that's impossible. Not here, not now. Statistics tell me every 68 seconds, someone in America is guilty of sexual, being sexually assaulted. One in three women have experienced or encountered sexual assault. About one in five men have as well. And I'm sharing this because it reveals that many in here might have been the victim of some type of sexual immorality. And whether you've been the victim of an unwanted sexual act or the victim of incest, which I learned, if you broadly define incest, it's 10% of American families have been impacted by this. Most of the time, nobody ever talks about it. Hear my heart, hear the heart of the elders. Man, if this is you and this is part of your story, man, we are so sorry. And we are heartbroken for you. And we want to do whatever it takes to care for you. 
Maybe you're here and you've never been able to tell anyone. Be quite normal if you blamed yourself. If you wondered to yourself, what did I do wrong? Must be something I did wrong. And we can appreciate that you might feel conflicted, somehow complicit, that you may be worried that what would happen if people found out? What about who did this to me? What if they find out who that is? And you may feel all sorts of different emotions around this subject, but hear our heart, and we want to help you, and we want to protect you, and we want to care for you. We're going to walk through you through healing. And if you're hearing these words and you're not in a safe situation, please tell somebody, don't suffer in silence. But as we touch on this, if you're thinking to yourself, is, is healing even possible, Pastor? Good news. It's possible. It's promised. Friends, the gospel is powerful, and there is hope and healing found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is so comprehensive, it can bring hope and healing to any issue. Nothing is off limits from the power of the gospel. And know that we offer free biblical counseling, trained, caring counselors capable of walking you toward healing. Pastor, like, have you been through that? Like, do you know what it's like to be the victim of rape? Do you have experience with incest? Because if not, how can you be so sure that, that hope and healing is actually possible? So, I've never experienced those sins personally. So, no, I don't know what that's like for me, but I know it's true. And the reason I know that hope and healing is possible is because the book tells me. And I know hope and healing is available to all. But specifically, for those who've struggled with being sexually assaulted or the victim of incest or any other gross sinful areas, I know hope and healing is possible. And even if your experience says, not a chance, experience isn't our authority, the word of God is our authority, and there is hope. In fact, I want to show you as we finish up our sermon here where hope is found. Because you might be thinking to yourself, my backstory is too awful. Man, my gut-wrenching sins Pastor can never be redeemed. You're wrong. Look in the text. Genesis 19, verses 37 and 38. Here is the hope. Follow along as I read it aloud. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Grace on you if you think to yourself, that is the weirdest hopeful verse I've ever heard you read. Here's the hope. First, notice that in the context, Sodom and Gomorrah has just been destroyed because of their gross sexual perversions. And here in this text, we still have gross sexual perversions, but we don't see Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction happening to Lot's daughters. Do you notice that? God lets them live despite all these awful sins. 
Well, it's because they were in a cave, in a fallout shelter. That's why God couldn't get them with raining sulfur. Oh, you don't think God's got other ways to get them? And that's his only little source of destruction wrong. Here's hope. First is this. Mercy to these two daughters. Mercy in even allowing conception to happen. Man, children are from the Lord. This is a gift. And the Lord is being merciful to these two daughters despite their egregious sin. That's the first place of hope. Man, they messed up real bad. And God, God had forbearance. He had forbearance on them. But that's not the only way. Later on in Deuteronomy 2, as the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land, there are two people groups that the Lord says, don't mess with them. Would you like to guess, whereas the Israelites were to mess with a lot of people groups and a lot of Canaanites, guess what two people groups in Deuteronomy 2, 16 to 19, the Israelites were not to mess with? Don't touch the Moabites and don't touch the Ammonites. Hundreds of years later, up to 600 years later, and here's the Lord still honoring that Lot was part of the covenant family of God. I'll be in an extended relationship to Abraham, God, and Deuteronomy 2, still honoring his covenant to Abraham. God has mercy. God's still protecting them 600 years later, but that's not even the best one. I did homework, tried to find the most famous Ammonite in all the Bible. I struck out. I didn't find one. But there is a famous Moabite in the Bible. Can you think of the most famous Moabite in the Bible? Who comes from this awful, sordid, gut-wrenching story of incest? It's Ruth. It's Ruth. A Moabite who, in the face of great tragedy, commits herself to the Lord. Despite the fear she must have had in leaving her home country, she follows Naomi back to the promised land of Israel. Ruth, she demonstrates great confidence in God's providence. Ruth, instead of seeking self-preservation, she opens her hands to God and says, I am going to trust you, Ruth, she finds a spiritual home and a physical home. And in contrast, Ruth, to the eldest daughter in our text, we find Ruth not seducing a man to try to have a baby, but faithfully working, providing for her mother-in-law until in God's providence, a kinsman redeemer finds Ruth, says, I'm going to marry that lady. And he does. Boaz. He marries Ruth. Boaz is part of the people of God. And the Moabite brought in. And do you know who Ruth's grandson was? None other than King David. The most important king in the history of Israel. Thank you very much. When he said to himself, I love my grandma. That was a Moabite. And do you remember who comes from King David? Down the lineage? Jesus, so that at a family reunion someday in heaven, when Jesus wants to know who his great, 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 however many greats grandma is, it's a Moabite who traces her story of origin back to incest. Here's the gospel connection I want you to see. Here's the hope. 
despite our fears and tendency to sinfully respond with self-preservation, and despite all the ways others may have sinfully impacted us, there is no sin so great, no backstory so awful, there is no sexual sin so shameful that God cannot redeem church. You cannot outsin the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. Not only born in the lineage of a Moabite woman named Ruth, but the one who perfectly believed God's promises and trusted God. Whereas Lot sinfully was afraid in the face of God's judgment and wrath, Jesus on the cross looked directly down the barrel of God's judgment and he took it. The reigning fire and sulfur that you and I deserved, Jesus Christ received it so that in Jesus we don't have to sinfully respond to God in fear and try to live in a cave as a fallout shelter. Do you believe in Christ? He would save you from judgment today if you are here and you are struggling with the shame of sexual sin. If you're struggling with the sin of sexual assault or incest, look at Jesus. He went to the cross and he took the shame so you don't have to. You don't have to bear it any longer. You don't have to walk around as if shame has to define you. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here and in Christ Jesus, you can release your shame and leave it at the cross. Believe the gospel. Don't live in self-preservation mode. It will lead to self-destruction. For God can redeem all of us. He has provided a greater kinsman redeemer than Boaz. That's what Lot's daughters needed, a man like Boaz. That's what Ruth received. For us today, we have access to the true and greater one, Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the redeemer you need. He's the redeemer you can trust. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're here, you're just checking this thing out. Know this. You're afraid of something. And you're going to respond to your fear in something. Our heart for you is that you would look to Jesus. And you would trust him as the antidote for sinful fear. Will you pray with me, please? Now, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the ways that you redeem. Even in some of the most difficult and gut-wrenching passages. Thank you that you've been with us through the difficult and gut-wrenching parts of our story. And thank you that you will redeem. I pray you would. Give hope to those who are struggling. Bring healing to those who are oppressed by their backstory. Lord, for those who are overwhelmed with shame, release them today. The Spirit, for those who don't know you, save. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.